0: Well, welcome to Delivering Differently, which is our podcast on Delivering Differently in Australia's Federation. I'm Professor AJ Brown from Griffith University, and I'm joined for this podcast by two experts in the field. Jenny Menzies, who's a principal research fellow with Griffith University's Policy Innovation Hub, but more importantly, has spent many years in the practice of Australian Federation as Director of Strategic Policy for the Queensland Government, former Queensland Government Cabinet Secretary, Secretary of the Council for the Australian Federation, which is the forum of all state premiers and territory chief ministers and also a Commonwealth Grants Commissioner. So wonderful to have you, Jenny. Hi,
1: AJ. I'm glad to be here.
0: And we're also joined by Dr. Jacob Deem, who's a lecturer in constitutional law at CQ University, formerly lectured in constitutional law at Griffith Law School and has also been a research fellow in Griffith's Policy Innovation Hub and also in Griffith's Centre for Governance and Public Policy. So welcome, Jacob. Hi, great to be here. Uh, I'm Professor AJ Brown. I'm a Professor of Public Policy and Law at Griffith University's School of Government and International Relations. And all of us are part of the team delivering uh, a new course at Griffith University called Making Federation Work, uh, which is all about how our federal system is adapting to the new crises of our age, but in the light of a long history of debate about how we make our federal system work best for the Australian community. So to kick off the discussion today about making the Federation deliver differently and better, uh, we're obviously in very interesting um, and challenging, but very interesting times. And I thought I might start with you, Jenny, thinking about what's happened, what's changing with the Federation and the way that it works at a structural level or a political level. And obviously everybody has been watching what's been happening with the new national cabinet with a great deal of interest. So, so what's new about it, um, what's actually not new about it, uh, and what could and should we make stick out of this new era of leaders getting together for our federation?
1: Oh, thanks, AJ. Um, I think a lot of people were quite um, uh, happily pleased with the way that the National Cabinet came together quickly as, as, a, as a new structure in the, in the federation. And it did a number of... Um, really interesting things and, and we'll get round to some of these things that should stick. I think one of the key things was there was respect for the jurisdictional capability within the Federation in that the states were seen as equal partners and within something like the COVID-19 crisis they had of course a key role to play. Um, people really appreciated the lack of like a partisan and ideological baggage so they focused on the issues and um coming up with collaborative responses to those issues. Um, And I think the fact that they were guided by the technical research and advice, so the the role that the chief health officers played, I think was very interesting as the feeder organisation into the National Cabinet. Uh, What also worked, I think, was the fact that they met frequently, COAG, was really subject to, in many ways, the, the whim of the Prime Minister and, and and met when the Prime Minister kind of felt it was timely. So um, with the, the constant changeover of kind of political leaders through elector, uh, elections or occasionally, you know, through their own party, I think it's very hard for those people to come together um, as a cohort and learn how to work together. And the fact that the National Cabinet was meeting so frequently... Um, allowed them, I suspect...
0: And and still is.
1: And still is, to form that bond, to understand each other's operating styles, what their strengths and weaknesses were, what they could bring to the table. And I think the final thing that worked was the fact that it was a limited agenda. So a lot of those uh, issues of dispute within the Federation uh, weren't there. So you focused on one issue. So that's what worked. The National Cabinet has had a name change, but it's had nothing that I can see to fundamentally change the way that COAG operated behind it. So if, if they actually want a different structure of the Federation, I think they need to do a number of things and they need to establish it as a truly uh, collaborative structure. So at the moment, the agenda and all the papers are controlled by the prime minister and the federal government. And, and that didn't change during the, the COVID crisis. So the states and territories have a very limited input into the agenda. I think what really worked with the National Cabinet was it understood its role was to set an overarching framework. So the first challenge was we have to flatten the curve. So everyone understood what the challenge was and the states all had to do it. And there was a closing down of the economy in people's workplaces. But states could do that at a different pace to suit their jurisdictional uh, differences. So allowed them to have a locally response, responsive implementation plans. I think if you take some of that thinking and model into the ongoing National Cabinet, I think that's very powerful.
0: One of those key factors that you mentioned, which is the politics of the situation. On one hand, we've seen that um, great that, that's level of consensus and solidarity, collegiality um, between our leaders, but then we've also seen that start to fray at the edges, especially over things like Argument over border closures and school—whether schools should be open or not—so there's been a lot of a lot of tension in that discussion. Um, and just very recently, Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk did openly criticise the Prime Minister for not having stepped in to stop people criticising the Labor state governments for their decisions about, say, border closures, um, while at the same time. Uh, coalition state governments in New South Wales or Victoria or South Australia haven't been getting much criticism for some of the actions that they're responsible for. So very interesting and sort of crucial tensions. What what chance have we got in the long term of seeing ourselves not slip back to that kind of point scoring that uh, that everybody dislikes so much?
1: Yes, I think without a fundamental change to some of the culture, around the National Cabinet, it's very difficult to see. I thought what was interesting around the criticisms of the states is the Prime Minister didn't do it. So he was very careful to keep um, that cohort, that leadership group together, and yet he'd send out kind of more junior ministers to do it. So that's only got a certain lifespan, that kind of activity, until the states jack up, as Anastasia Palaszczuk recently uh, did. I think the, the political transition that needs to stick is how you change it from, COAG was like a transactional bargaining model. You'd have a new funding agreement and all the states would go and do trade-offs and decide deals and secret deals with the Commonwealth or whatever, whereas the National Cabinet around COVID transitioned to a a problem-solving model. So when you get get back to a fuller agenda of National Cabinet, it would be interesting to see if that cultural change could stick.
0: So while we're thinking about border closures, um, Jacob this, this sort of constitutional politics is not just playing out in the media and in the politics between first first ministers and, and leaders. It's also playing out in the High Court, which is a big reminder of the fact that the whole federal system is ultimately based in what the Constitution will allow and won't allow. If you think about um, this very controversial issue of border closures. Um, How are we seeing the High Court brought into this? Um, Who's suing who? And what does that mean for something like the way that the Federation will learn and respond to a crisis like this?
2: Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. We have seen this political dimension now spilling over into sort of the legal sphere with these border closure disputes. So initially, Clive Palmer was challenging the Western Australia closing its borders and then he brought in Queensland to his challenge as well. And then what we've seen in the last month or so is the Commonwealth government exercise its right to join in on those proceedings. That's been a really interesting development because it shows the Commonwealth in in some ways operating in a, a business as usual respect to the Federation in terms of trying to get its way by any means necessary. Um, It's tried in the political sphere for a long time, trying to strong arm the states into doing what it wants them to do, trying to open those borders, hasn't been too successful. So now they're joining in 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 that legal space as well. So the key issue is this legal dispute that's before the High Court at the moment uh, around Western Australia and Queensland closing their borders. And constitutionally speaking, there's two key issues or two provisions in the constitution that are are at play here. So first we've got section 92, uh, which allows for or provides that intercourse or movement between states should be absolutely free. Uh, And the argument of course is that these border closures prevent the free movement between states and, and the free movement into Western Australia and Queensland in particular. The second provision that we're seeing is uh, sometimes being invoked is section 117 which provides that uh, a citizen of Australia can't be discriminated against on the basis of the state that they come from and and citizens shouldn't be treated differently based on on the state that they reside in. So section 92 so far has been the main um, provision that that we've been interested in uh, and looking at in particular whether these restrictions on on free movement are okay. Now despite the words absolutely free in the Constitution, there are some exceptions uh, and and some restrictions on movement across borders will be allowed as long as they're for a proportionate other purpose. Uh, and so in this instance we might expect that, you know, responding to a global health pandemic and and responding to a public health emergency should generally, we would expect, be a legitimate reason to to restrict movement into a particular state. What the court will be interested in is whether the, the means that Western Australia and Queensland have adopted to impose those border restrictions are proportionate to that legitimate public purpose or not. Now, uh, a couple of weeks ago, the High Court uh, remitted those questions to the Federal Court um, on a bit of a fact-finding mission to actually review some of the medical evidence um, to look at the spread of the virus uh, and the different measures and what seems to be working and, and what's not working. So that's where those disputes are at, at the moment. Uh, the federal court's going through all that evidence for now. Um, it remains to be seen what the court will decide, but the, the key issue really is gonna be that proportionality. Is, is the border closure proportionate to that, that public health question?
0: So really, I mean, it shows us how important the law actually is to how the Federation works, even in a crisis situation. And uh, the fascinating thing, of course, is for all those who have ever studied constitutional law, the idea that trade should be absolutely free has always been, uh, the, the worry has always been that states would use uh, the Constitution and their boundaries to protect their economies. Whereas in this situation, we talk about border closures, but of course the borders have never closed. There's just been restrictions on them. The, the thing that has least closed is interstate trade and commerce, which has been... Uh, absolutely supported, apart from tourism being affected. And um, so the idea, for, for for anybody who's ever studied constitutional law, remember the great phrase, discriminatory burden of a protectionist kind. Um, and uh, what's fascinating is that a state like Queensland, by keeping its borders shut, hasn't been protecting its tourism industry. It's actually been deliberately hurting its own tourism industry for the sake of that trade-off with public health. So... Um, so it is a fascinating reminder of the way the Constitution impacts. The other thing, of course, that's fascinating is that uh, in this situation, which is again a bit different to the past, we have the, the, the Commonwealth government really working very much through the states with things like financial measures to assist the Australian community, um, rather than necessarily trying to fund them all directly itself. and that too, I think, is a really important reflection of what's being done a bit differently this time from some other times that the Commonwealth Government has stepped in and, and tried to take, take control of national emergencies like the GFC, for example. So, but let's talk a little bit about some of the other differences in the delivery uh, of the way the Federation works in the COVID uh, crisis. Um, we've seen differences between the way that the states have been Uh, responding to the crisis and that's been allowed and in fact facilitated by the National Cabinet process or respected by the National Cabinet process and you referred to this Jenny but we also see some interesting differences between the way that the states have responded. Um, For example uh, most states using the police and, and or the defence force to enforce their hotel quarantines but the notable Apparently notable exception of Victoria, having decided to very quickly, rapidly contract out to security firms who appear to have um, exploited this opportunity um, by hiring all their mates uh, to be security guards at short notice um, with some um, pretty, apparently pretty severe impacts on the quality of the protection of the community. So how do we actually make sure that the differences between what the states do are good differences rather than bad differences?
1: Well, I think there's probably some rapid learning that would, it seems to be part of this process. Uh, and again, that was something the National Cabinet seemed to be set up to do. People, people, and you, and you hear this, you hear uh, our leaders say this quite often, oh, we need to do more work on this or we didn't, we didn't get that quite right. So they're accept, accepting they're in a rapidly uh, changing environment and then they've, they've developed the agility to move with that. Um, and I think in, in Australia we tend to underplay the the geographic, the economic, the social, the demographic differences uh, around the country, or even the weather. Um, and what what this has has brought home is um, the need to be able to adapt policies to respect some of that. And I think because I know the Queensland example the best, there's a couple of things that. Queensland had going for it that maybe the other states and territories didn't, and one of those is a very highly developed disaster management system. So what will happen in this wash-up is, well, will other states and territories look at these lessons or could you do it more um, structurally through the National Cabinet where instead of always having the Commonwealth-led top-down agenda which could you acknowledge um, some of the diversity uh, in Australia by having uh, a bottom-up agenda? So you find a topic, say some of it is some of around the response to this and all the states and territories share their, their lessons and what they learned and from that you develop the best practice. So I think this is an opportunity for the National Cabinet to think a bit differently about how they how they come to some of their conclusions.
0: And indeed, if you think about it, just a very few months ago during the height of the bushfire crisis, we saw, I think, some real evidence of how the system can fail and not work as smoothly as it should. You know, all states do have their disaster management frameworks. The Commonwealth is supposed to be hooked into that, and yet you know we had a huge crisis of confidence over Christmas and New Year um because they're seen that that seemed to have sort of fallen apart in in some ways in terms of Commonwealth state relations um, and and we saw you know that the Prime Minister almost like in physical standoff and and very high conflict with with both the New South Wales Premier and the and the head of the New South Wales uh Rural Fire Service Shane Fitzsimmons um, and so So it it does seem really significant that we've gone from a moment where we seem to have all the systems in place but we seem to have forgotten how to make them work really well together to a situation where straight off the back of that we've leapt into really making things work much more seamlessly and we've now got an opportunity to actually learn from that and hold it together. Would that be a fair summary?
1: I think so. And it might be uh, the difference in the topic in that the the chief... um, health officers have worked together as a cohort for a long time so it so the structures are already in place um, with that structure and I think they had done um, some trials around the pandemic so they had a whole series of material and thinking to draw on when this happened and also to a lesser extent um, the, the the state and territory leaders and the prime minister were used to working together uh through coac. so the bushfire um, crisis ended up by being a bit of a um, a pick off between the different state premiers. Whereas because they all came together in the national cabinet, I think that really changed the dynamic of it. And the fact that they had those supportive structures under them, giving one uh, line of advice, um, really changed that.
0: So, Jacob, thinking about how can and should the lessons from this this type of crisis benefit communities. I mean, we, we do, you know, we've always seen during bushfire crises, um, fire services, send crews across borders to work with one another in a very collaborative way. We've seen other community agencies come together on the ground. Um, some of that, there's some criticism that some of the bushfire relief is, has lost momentum, partly, I think, because of the extent to which everybody has been distracted by COVID, but, or not distracted, but, ha- has to be occupied by COVID, but we are also seeing um, right now deputy chief Chief medical officers from different states um, going to other states, going to Victoria to both help with and learn from their response to the crisis. We've seen hundreds of Commonwealth public servants um, redeployed, seconded to frontline roles in ways that probably we haven't seen before, um, you know, for maybe half a century. Um, so what are the lessons of all of this in terms of actually getting better outcomes for communities in the way that government works?
2: It's, um, it's an interesting point, the sort of the movement of personnel um, and, and the way that initially we didn't see too much of it because all the states sort of had to get their own houses in order. And now that now that Victoria is really emerging as, as the hotspot where the other, states are sort of a bit more on top of things, being able to free up a bit of personnel and move them across has been an interesting development. And as you say, it does sort of uh, mimic what we see in, in, in times of bushfire crisis and natu- natural disaster at times. But the way this plays out at a community level, I think is really interesting because it really does highlight the importance of community within our federation. Um, and, and in some ways, it, it challenges what we understand as a community as being um, having been through you know weeks and months of, of isolation we're seeing communities have have to function much more uh, compactly and efficiently just because you know you can't travel anywhere else uh, which has been an interesting development and I think sort of places a bit more emphasis on on the local compared to you know what we've seen in in other times, and the Commonwealth's reliance on on services on the ground because of those travel restrictions and the lockdowns and things like that has been really interesting. What we're now seeing as as we start to move out of the initial crisis um, is a sort of you know different different paces in recovery, uh, and of course some communities are going to bounce back faster than others, and so that's where. The attention really needs to be now is, is you know, how are different communities affected, both in terms of, you know, the spread and the health side of things, we've got these hotspots down in Melbourne now at the moment, versus the economic uh, recovery, and, and particularly sort of tourist hotspots that weren't affected so much by the health aspect, but have been really hit hard by the economic aspect. It's going to require very different responses, from government and from the private sector and so being able to use structures like the national cabinet to recognize those local differences and to listen to what communities need i think is going to be a really important uh, focus moving forward even
0: before we get to that when we think about the front the people who are working on the front line now from different levels of government i mean it's it's fascinating to see that you know, some of the best resources that the Commonwealth can mobilise are, of course, the Australian Defence Force. Um, but we have this really interesting relationship where we're talking about public servants there being deployed, not to be not to be soldiers, but actually to provide a completely different level of, of uh, resource and support to the community, which really hinges on people trusting their role. Um, and similarly with the police services. I mean, again, we've seen quite significant differences in the way that Uh, different states have uh, dealt with the regulation of the community that's required in a lockdown environment Um, and some criticism again in Victoria of having been very heavy-handed in the way that they've policed lockdown requirements with the community, fining people for being out driving for a driving lesson for example, um, versus I think in Queensland where there's been a very uh, much more of an approach of of the police recognising that we have to do this in partnership with the community, unless we've got the confidence and the trust of the community um, in those, in those measures, then we're really not going to be able to enforce them at the end of the day. Um, So is there a, you know, are there lessons for frontline public servants in terms of how they should conceive their role um, when they're moving from, from a sort of a traditional role, I guess, into one that's really quite different in their interactions with the community.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So there's, we are having to see public servants be a lot more innovative in the way that they go about the business of government. Uh, even the shift uh, to, you know, a lot of frontline workers moving uh, working from home and working remotely and things like that, that's required its own form of, of innovation and adaptability as well. But the the emphasis on community trust and and civic trust in government is really important because traditionally we we do see um, i guess members of the public service uh, institutions like the police although you know there have been their own uh, issues with trust in police as we've seen in recent months but generally these sort of frontline services experience a higher level of trust from the community than our elected representatives, our politicians. And so being able to harness public trust in, in those frontline services is really, really important. Being able to maintain and, and extend that trust um, so that the messages from our politicians are heard when they do need to be heard.
0: And I think, Jenny, you mentioned right back at the beginning that when we talk about recognition and respect for expertise, the role of trust in our health professionals our public health professionals has you know could not have played a more prominent role in the way in which government has brought everybody sort of through this crisis or along with it through this crisis.
1: I think that's right I think the respect um was already there and the fact that our political leaders were willing to take advice from the chief medical officers but I think um the great untold story of what's happened so far is really about the public service. You know, and there's a whole lot of cliches around how how they operate and they seem a bit kind of, you know, tradition-bound or whatever. But I think there's an extraordinary story about agility and innovation, um, of people rapidly pivoting to change circumstances, working from home, delivering services where they hadn't delivered them before, getting people into areas where there was a great need so people... uh, public servants from different areas then suddenly going to work into health where they needed people to uh track down contact contact tracing all of that's happened very rapidly behind the scenes and from outside of government you don't see that but the fact that they could they had the technology in place and they had the agility to rapidly change the work they were doing i think is uh, incredible
0: and i think when it comes to our public health professionals if uh if Dr Anthony Fauci would, would love to be working in a federal environment other than the United States at the moment, I'm sure he would be loving to work in Australia rather than in America. Um, let's just come back to the Federation uh, in conclusion. Some of those questions about the responsiveness of our federal structures do hinge on that relationship with the community. and um of course you know over many years people have said the australian federal system needs savage reform we should be abolishing the states um it's it's not fit for purpose um and i think we can see through all of this that you know very few people if anybody is saying get it get rid of the states at the moment um and that appears to be for very good reason but what about um the local and regional levels that that jacob was talking about one thing we've seen with the national cabinet jenny is that The Australian Local Government Association which was part of COAG has been kicked out of National Cabinet for its regular meetings Um, and we see that uh, local government is being relied on and many of the things that are playing out are very much at that local or regional level where uh, one size fits all across the state is really very problematic when it comes to lockdowns, when it comes to travel restrictions or social distancing restrictions. The people in Mildura um, across the border from people in New South Wales, uh, you know, clearly don't need to be subject to the same sort of restrictions that are applying in Melbourne at the moment. So how do we, uh, you know, how, how are we going to learn from this in terms of having a more, more responsive federation for local and regional communities, given that our states are still very large and still often very one size fits all?
1: Um, there's a couple of issues here. The, the role of... Um the local government association in COAG was always a bit undefined. So I think part of the issue was, as I talked about the kind of bargaining nature, the states and territories in there negotiating the big kind of education health packages or counterterrorism or whatever that um, local government doesn't really have any responsibility for. So it was a bit of a kind of an ex officio sitting and listening um, and I think that's probably why that, they disappeared out of the national cabinet so quickly because it wasn't. They didn't carve for themselves a meaningful role. Um, if I was in the Australian Local Government Association, I would be carving that role <laughs> now and then going back and re prosecuting the case uh, because I think you do need that continuity of them being being there. Um, and I think the second issue around. Um, community responses to the outbreak or whatever. Um, local government are the key and primary players initially in the disaster management system. So I think that is strong and that's still in play. So um, it scales upwards, as, as people know, from local government to state government to the Commonwealth, depending, depending on the size and the nature of the disaster. So I think that's kept them in the game um, within about local responses um, and some of the state governments are also very particular about economic packages having regional elements, particularly in places like Queensland.
2: Jacob, it's it's sort of interesting. Um, in your your intro, I think you hit the nail on the head in talking about we've seen just the sheer expertise and capacity that we have at the state level, um, which has been yeah quite impressive. And where there's probably room for improvement is being able to adapt. That expertise and capacity to suit local conditions within a state, and so perhaps structurally, what we're looking at is is a better feedback mechanism from the local area up into the states. We we've got really good systems in place in a disaster management setting, as as Jenny said, but being able to to adapt that to broader governance issues, I think is perhaps structurally something that we can look at going forward.
0: Well, we haven't even talked about many of the other key issues that are on the move in terms of the Federation uh, delivering better and differently. We haven't talked about closing the gap. We haven't talked about Black Lives Matter. Um, We haven't talked about um, uh, many, many things that that make a big difference in people's lives. But that's all we have time for. So, Jenny, I'm just going to ask you uh, one thing that we seem to be doing differently uh, with the Federation that we need to keep and preserve. What's the most important thing?
1: I think think that would be respecting the jurisdictional capability of the the states and territories and through through that harnessing the state-based innovation that has come to light.
0: And, Jacob, the one thing that we're not doing differently yet that we
2: should be doing, what do you think? At the start of the crisis, we saw a commitment to the federation that transcended party lines. Uh, Now that's starting to fray away a little bit, and I think that the federation needs to transcend party politics.
0: Well, thank you very much. Uh, Joining me today for this podcast has been Jenny Menzies from Griffith University's Policy Innovation Hub. Uh, and Dr Jacob Deem from CQ University Law School, Um, I'm Professor AJ Brown uh, from the School of Government and International Relations at Griffith University. This podcast was produced by the team at Griffith Business School's DigiLab and many of the themes and issues discussed in this podcast are further explored in a course, uh, Making Federation Work, which is uh, suitable for really anybody who would like to do it, who is interested in improvement in our system of of government, um, which Jenny, Jacob uh, and myself and many other Uh, prominent experts are very pleased to deliver. Um, So you can join that course as a student of our Master of Public Administration, or indeed you can just join that course for professional development purposes. And all you need to do is use your favorite search engine to look up Griffith University making federation work and you'll find our course. Thank you for joining us and please enjoy doing delivering differently.